Yeah, you got more dog than I could handle. That's for sure. Three dogs right now. Oh uh, yeah. Well, fortunately, the poodle's going home tonight, which is good because she's been <laughs> very irritable with my other two. <laughs> so, what kind of a person uh, is it that can take on an extra dog while having a puppy? A superhuman I'm, person? What's I'm a what? dog. I'm a dog nut. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to Monday. Uh, it is February 5th, Solid Ground live stream. We have Dr. Brett Alderman joining us. And thank you so much for being with us, Brett, today. And we are, um, we have a topic today that, that I'm really excited to explore and talk about. We, um, I've kind of gotten into this a little bit with you guys and with other guests, but the the impact of pornography on our culture, on individuals. And I think that when we talk about porn, we often can get into these moralistic conversations around, um, around uh, women and, and sex and sex work and stuff. But we, we don't often focus on the impacts that it has on men and, and on the user and the user isn't just men. A lot of women are using porn to, to, and are not happy with the degree to which they find themselves using porn. And some women are very happy with porn, but I recently read this book, Your Brain on Porn, and I recommended it to you guys, and you all agreed to read it with me. And uh, I wanted to just launch into a conversation around that. Is there such a thing as porn addiction? What are the impacts of porn on the individual? And and I, I kind of will just leave it loose like that, and we can break into it. But perhaps, Deborah, would you like to introduce Solid Ground before we yes. really get into that? I finally have the blurb in front awesome. of me. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> um, Solid Ground is a peer support community for anyone concerned about the imposition of critical social justice, AKA woke and or COVID mandates in their workplace, university, children's school or community. We offer weekly online peer support groups. There are actually three right now in which members share ideas, thoughts and support for how to navigate the impact of these ideologies and answer the question, where do we go from here? You can join one of our groups for only $5 a month. To find out how to join our community, please visit solidgroundsupport.com. And please note that Solid Ground does not provide psychotherapy or legal advice, and nothing we do should be construed as such. Excellent. Thank you so much. And we really enjoy our groups. So please join us any if you're, if you're looking for something like that. The, I think... We all really get a lot out of that. All the members are um, lovely and, and it's such a nice place. Um, so back to the topic at hand, I, uh, I reached out to the author. I wanted to reach out to the author of this book because I, I found it really helpful and really informative. And I found out that he had actually passed away a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. So I sent an uh, email to the contact on the book's website it, and I received a response back from i guess the the team that runs the website i'm not really sure how this works because they were pretty they were pretty curt but they offered me a couple of links and i'll share them in the description it it appears that this the guy who wrote this book was then subject to a complete internet smear campaign mm. <laughs> a, a manipulation of the wayback machine even they go into some detail on this like this guy had uh his entire reputation was attacked by people who were upset that he was talking about porn being porn use being problematic. And uh, I can I include those in the description, but apparently there's nobody from that team who's willing at all to talk publicly because they're afraid of similar reputational damage and cancellation. I just, I didn't realize that this was an issue. I didn't realize that there was some kind of, big bad porn industry mafia out there defending the porn industry. I, I didn't think it needed that. So that was interesting, but perhaps that's something that could be, I don't know if you guys want to talk about that, we can, or we can go straight into the meat of the book. And I'll kind of open it up to you guys. Everybody's <laughs> looking yeah, at each other. I know, I should call on somebody. <laughs> don't, all don't all rush at once. Yeah. When, when, when you were saying that, Leslie, I immediately thought of the attacks that can befall someone when they step out of a line talking about gender and how there's a huge industry that's, you know, protecting this idea that medical transition is the way to treat 
gender dysphoria or anything that looks like it. And just that whole, it, and it almost, and this is just an intuitive feeling, but it feels like part of the same big Borg, you know, just, um, and it also makes me think of how there's just so little nuance in public discourse. It's like you're either, if you just criticize certain aspects of a certain phenomena like porn, then you're just like lumped into this category of the antis. Everybody's in the anti or the pro and there's no like ability to even have a, just a discussion, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a really good parallel. And I also think that it is my sense that there's something that connects these things. There's, I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about the same thing. We're just, it's different uh, branches of the same tree. We're talking about sex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the activist piece of it, because insofar they're either the sex positivity people or the non-shaming, we can't shame mm -hmm. anything or even anti-religious. I mean, I think a lot of these efforts, people are getting accused of coming at it because they're religious. But in fact, like we were talking earlier about these support groups that have popped up that young men have created for themselves. And I think most of them are secular in nature. They're not being motivated by some sort of religiously based shame. They're just like, wow, this is really affecting my life in a way that I don't like. <laughs> I'd like to stop. Deborah, um, could you say a little more about the support groups? Because we had a little chat about that prior to going. Yeah. Yeah. Live. And I wish I can remember. Uh, what, I think it was the one no fap. I forget what the, they're oh, named, but I think and I don't know if they're based in Reddit. All of them are. But I think there's one even your brain on porn, the name of the book. There might have been one under that name. I'm not sure. But in any event, it seems like there's anywhere from thousands to tens of thousands of primarily young men, because this problem seems to be much harder to kick if a young brain got on that pathway than if it's an older person. Um, they're having more of the erectile dysfunction and other, other things. And so any event, there's just these young men all trying to encourage each other if they decide they're going to you know, go cold turkey or whatever to just like help each other through it um, and to kind of, you know, be there for each other. And so there it's, it's, we were saying earlier, but it's just an interesting thing of, you know, the authorities don't understand things or experts. And so people are going, well, we need help. Let's just do it amongst ourselves. And apparently, you know, these things are probably, maybe they're free or they probably don't cost that much. I'm imagining. And, and again, with, I think most, and there's probably some religious ones I would imagine, but I think most of them are not doing any sort of like shaming thing, or you're going to go to hell or you're bad. They're just like, gosh, I used up my whole day on this, or I like, I don't know how to have a relationship anymore because all I know is to be stimulated by these images. And so to have them see a pathway, I'm imagining, I don't know if it's, it's not like they're doing the 12 steps, but I can imagine seeing people ahead of you having managed to break free of this, that can be encouraging to go, oh, I could do this too. Yeah, this was one of the things about this book that I liked a lot was that it was full of testimonials. Mm -hmm. It was and and just chock full of of people scenarios that they were describing their own anecdotes from their lives, their own struggles or their own successes. But it was really full of of individual testimonials from users who were upset about the or, or who who felt like they were caught up in something that was bigger than they could control and they were looking for help with that and it also was very non-judgmental he does not moralize about pornography or sex at all and i think the moralistic argument is very interesting also and has a lot of value and i i don't discount that but i don't think it's necessary in order to have a conversation about porn one one of the things that maybe we should mention is it's the book isn't really just about porn it's about a certain type of porn that wasn't available to people before i mean online streaming porn is really a different beast you know i remember and this is like little self confession here i remember when i was like you know i don't know 12 13 and 
we had to go to the 7-Eleven and like find a way of getting like a Playboy. And it was like, it was a big deal. It was a project. And then, you know, and that's, that's completely different from having a, you know, a little device in your pocket where you can go like, okay, there's 70 different genres that I can choose from and instantly see something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, I don't know, comparing caffeine to like heroin or something. Um, yeah. And as I was saying, I think before we recorded, I'm glad that I grew up in the era that I did. So I didn't have that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and the thing that, one of the things that sort of also shocked me on top of that, in terms of this hyper stimuli, were how many people would keep open multiple tabs. So I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm imagining they're seeing, you know, multiple videos kind of like all going at once. And you just think of any content, right? Like what, like just all of that, you know, going at your brain and then how much your that, that need for getting desensitized at a certain point um, and then needing even more um, in order to kind of get the stimulation again. Um, that I was like, wow, that part of you thought that's inventive, but not in a good way. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Jennifer, it, do you remember the part, the the description of what it is that that happens to men that they describe with their their own physical experience? You'd be a good person to talk about this, I bet. Oh, from the from the book, you from mean? the book, yeah. I'm totally putting you on Socratic method here. Oh, <laughs> like law school <laughs> all over again. It's fine. Just um, yeah, and I I haven't listened to the whole thing yet. I was listening to more of it this morning, and um, gosh, this, um, some of the stories were really sad because they were talking about how basically all of them say the same thing that they started out viewing kind of more vanilla porn online and then the effects of that wore off so they got into progressively more and more intense porn sometimes to the point where they started watching violent porn they were they even spoke about watching pornography that they found they didn't really like but that you know like where their conscience was kind of saying to them oh no like this is just weird but yet they would continue because they felt sort of um a sense of compulsion to continue watching it. And much like a drug, they needed a higher and higher dose, meaning more and more intense porn to get the same effects. And while that was happening, they noticed in their live interactions with women in their lives, their arousal decreased and their ability to perform decreased. It's a very, very common pattern. What, it was what are the, on that note, oh, sorry, go go ahead, Brett. Oh, I was just, I, I wrote down something from, I don't, I listened to the book, so I don't know the page, but it was something like video replaces imagination. Left to our imaginations, we tend to assume the starring role in our fantasies, not a passive voyeur. As a result, actual sex felt alien or feels alien. And it, it just... That really struck me because there, I mean, for a few different reasons, there is a difference between using your imagination um, and then, you know, I mean, that there's a shift in who you're identifying with. I suppose if you're, if you're just look, I mean, you're looking at a scene of someone else doing something that's so different from imagining yourself with another person perhaps a person you actually know, or, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I wish I, I wish I was more conversant in something like object relations to be able to like talk about that, but it, it just seems like a fundamental shift in who you're identifying with. And it and it, there's something so dis, extra dissociative built into that process, if that makes sense. I think that's a really that's a really powerful point. And there's this psychologist or I don't, I don't know if she's a coach or a, a uh, but she's, her name is Trish Lee, Dr. Trish Lee. And I have listened to a number of her podcasts. It's called porn brain rewire. Mm-hmm. And she talks about, and I, 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 love to talk with her sometime. Um, I've actually written to her, haven't heard back, but she, I'm sure she's inundated because she's one of the few people really boldly coming out in this field. And she talks about how the 
the bonding hormones that we produce during during the sexual act force us, or cause us to bond to the act and bond to this process. And when we do this over and over to masturbation, to porn, we're still secreting those bonding hormones. We're still experiencing that process, but we're bonding to the act of voyeurism. So oh. what we're actually doing is training ourselves to be a sexual voyeur and not training ourselves to be able to be engaged in one-on-one -on -one interaction or, or sexual interaction with real life partner. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to the thing that Jen said, because it really struck me about this, not even liking mm -hmm. what you're seeing. Cause it was, it seemed mm. like it was almost even if the novelty or surprise is actually that thing that like the dopamine and the other chemicals are sort of looking for. So like, that's, that's why you could even be watching something that's even potentially horrifying, but if it's novel, or if it's even startling, like somehow uh, the way our brain responds to that, that could be continued to be pursued despite the fact that you might even be disgusted or other things. I mean, to me, this whole thing is just fascinating about brain chemistry, um, which again, has nothing to do with what you feel about something or whether you even like something or anything that, that mm. this could be such an addiction that you could just keep doing something that you're actually potentially even repulsed by. Yeah, Grimp Dirge in the chat says, uh, Rama Chandran's work with Goldbeaks is revealing here. Hyperstimulus has always been an element of the way we represent humans, but this is like hyper hyperstimulus that burns out the retina. And I'm not sure about the Goldbeak or this researcher you're talking about, but the book, he does go into the supernormal stimulus and the idea that in in animals, in animal studies, they've done this with I guess with eggs of certain kind of bird, your dog really wants to get into the conversation. <laughs> Some desire studies, there. did you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So gold, uh, the, the bird egg, like when they presented, I don't know what bird it was, but with an egg that was shinier, larger, prettier than their own, they'll actually abandon their own egg to sit on this plastic thing. And the beetles, the beetles that were attracted to some kind of bottle some glass thing that looked like their shiny other beetle but even better and so they stopped trying to mate with other beetles and they spent their life working on pleasing this this glass bottle instead <laughs> of me and and in that way that's kind of what pornography uh God, offers what an analogy that is so scary that's a very apt analogy but kind of terrifying mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you guys remember this, but remember the scandal with Tiger Woods, the golf player, and he was found to be cheating on his wife with mm -hmm. numerous women. Around that time, there was talk in the media about sex addiction, mm -hmm. and that also included talk about porn addiction. And one of the articles I read, it was very sad, this young man talked about his addiction to porn, you know, following the same pathway I talked about earlier with progressively more and more intense porn. And he talked about, he got to the point where he was watching things that just evoked disgust and self-loathing. And yet he had to do that in order to maintain his arousal because basically his, um, you know, he had, the effects had just completely worn off with a, just like with a drug. And he said he finally got to the point where he was watching pornography with cockroaches crawling in and out of a woman's vagina. And that is what made him decide to get help. So you can imagine this Ooh. guy is thinking, yeah. what is wrong with me? And he's quite horrified by what he's viewing and horrified with himself. Mm -hmm. And yet he's compelled forward. And I've heard many drug addicts say, it is not even fun anymore. It's disgusting me. It's making me feel sick but I can't stop. And so the effects on the brain are really similar. I think it, I do think it's a legitimate addiction and really um, deserves study and treatment so people can get help. Well, that, I think the fact, go, go ahead, Brad. the fact that those normal, those um, extreme fantasies or genres or whatever are online um, on a, on websites that people know about, um, in and of itself sort of normalizes it. You know, you see, oh, there's been, you know, 
120,000 clicks on this, you know, video of somebody doing something that's just makes gives me the willies. Oh, but that somehow means well, that's just that's just a sexuality. That's just some people mm. are into that. Hey, no big deal, you know. Um that's frightening. And then it sort of I think it kind of brings me to think about, you know, sex positivity and this sort of blanket positivity that we put towards all sexual practices, which is 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 repugnant. I think there, I mean, there there is there does come a point when we do need to say, no, this is there's something morally wrong going on here. Mm -hmm. But you can't do it if if you're if you're stuck in no, it's all positive. Or maybe the converse of, you know, it's it's like it's only a man and a woman missionary style once you're married or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the normalizing aspect of it is frightening for me. That is really yeah. frightening for me as well with the, the way that we've started to talk about sexuality. And it's interesting. And I'm probably going to this is this is, I guess, touchy territory to wade into but the idea that everything is okay and there's a hard stop at pedophilia but if everything is okay including harm including asphyxiation including uh bestiality including that cockroach scene you're talking about and and uh, all kinds of things that are not in the realm of human natural interaction but you're going to make a hard stop there you, you're going to have to eventually, I think that barrier is going to erode as well. And that's oh, one thing that it's already yeah. eroding. Absolutely. Yeah. We've already got, it's okay to feel that way. Just don't mm -hmm. act on it. And so what's the next step? So, but how, how, what's your moral backdrop if everything is okay, but that's not okay. What's the moral backdrop? There's no moral backdrop. And yeah. uh, it just comes down to consent and who can give consent. And that's an, I mean, it seems like if you can give consent to your own murder or your own torture or your own or painful S&M stuff, um, then consent starts to mean less also. Right. And there is no age of consent for gender transition. So right. we're, we're, we've already got this non-boundary mm -hmm. in terms of consent mm -hmm. where we've already decided that children can consent to things that we never would have imagined they could consent to before. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Which in and of itself, I think this early exposure to, exposure to sexuality and the gender ideology in schools, I, vo I view that as a form of sexual abuse. Yeah. And so we are already sexualizing children. You know, when you were talking, Brett, I had this... Um, about the normalization of essentially what is abnormal sexual mm -hmm. acts. I thought we're doing that too, that with, along with the sex positivity, we're also doing that with um, body positivity, mm -hmm. which, and I am not one of those people that thinks, oh, everybody's got to be rail thin and muscular. I think that's right. utter nonsense. I think yeah. women in particular have had way too much pressure put on them in terms of our bodies. However, these things that they're saying, like there's no such thing as a bad food. Well, a deep fried Twinkie, for example, I would argue is a bad food. You're not a bad person for eating it, but I think that because uh, it's sort of like an overreaction to women who have had, um, you know, eating disorders. Well, we want to we want to remove all the feelings of guilt and shame around food. So now there's yeah. no bad foods. Well, it is bad for you. And no, you don't need to feel ashamed for eating it, but maybe cultivate a healthy relationship with your body where you're looking at food as nutrition and sustenance and you're not putting so many bad things into your body. To me, it would be a healthier, that is body positivity, respecting your body. But mm -hmm. we're, we've gone to this crazy, crazy extreme with that, just like we have with sex. And it seems to me that the emerging morality in the West is based on never telling anybody no mm -hmm. and never interfering with anybody's desires. That to me seems to be the new morality. Yeah. yeah and then there's just nothing that could be called health, right? If you were to define some bounds on what's healthy, that would be way too 
limiting to them. Yeah. There's there's no valuation of the idea of stigma. We're supposed to destigmatize everything as opposed to understanding that there are reasons to stigmatize certain behaviors. Now, maybe because we're not living in the past century, we want to change what we're stigmatizing or have a deeper or different understanding. But that's different from just throwing out the very idea of stigma and saying, let's just destigmatize everything. I mean, and a perfect example of this would be, okay, there was a massive stigma against same-sex relations before, and that has shifted, and I'm very much in favor of that. I don't think same-sex relations should be stigmatized, but that doesn't mean that nothing whatsoever should ever be stigmatized, and that's kind of the the you know the direction that things are are headed in. And just one other thing is like when you destigmatize something, then it's hard to see the meaning in it. Like for example. You know, if, if somebody comes to a, you know, a, a therapist and they have like a foot fetish and the only way that they can get off is by, you know, interacting with a person's foot. Well, you can say, <laughs> well, that's just that's just great. That's just you. You're a foot sexual or whatever. Uh, what would that be? A pedo? <laughs> what's the podiatrist? What's the what's the word? There's I don't know. But, you know. The, it's a different kind of pedophile, I guess. Right. But a different a different approach would be, okay, asking why is it that this person who's seeking connection with another human being can only do it with the part of the body that can't see, that can't feel, that's like just kind of on, that's potentially the dirtiest. I mean, it's like there's so much symbolism there that you're not even going to explore mm -hmm. if you just have to say, but it's positive. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. That, that forecloses any sort of investigation of what the hell's going on. Well, and there's the idea of, I, I think that that gets, gets into this, the realm of what are fetishes inborn? Is this just your sexuality or is it something that you've learned or picked up over your life? And one of the studies that the book mentions is a, I think it's a rat study where they paired a, a young male rat with female rats who were in estrus or however they were sexually receptive females and they had been rubbed down with the smell of death mm. like a dead animal had been rubbed on them and they they talk about how rats are really repulsed by that smell and will will run away from it and go to the other side of the cage but when left alone long enough with these receptive sexually receptive females that were that were rubbed with this smell the men, the, the males started to copulate with them and they over, over a number of pairings, eventually the men, the, I keep, I'm calling them men, the, the male rats. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. That's a terrible, the male rats eventually were aroused by that smell, even when not paired with the, the, the receptive female. So that smell became, and it was a, it was a, um, conditioned uh, they had a conditioned response to a smell that had been paired with the the first sim stimulus so it was it, it seems to indicate that we can train ourselves to have fetishes or to have strange kinks or whatever you want to call it just not a primary sexual attraction but a, a secondary characteristic that then becomes a primary draw <laughs> She Jennifer. smells like she smells like death, but hey, she's kind of cute. <laughs> she's perfume, right? <laughs> you know, and that like is a, oh, go ahead. A, perf a perfume, you know, like rotting corpse perfume. If you want to attract a necrophiliac, here it is. <laughs> I'm thinking in that case, it would be a dangerous thing because there's probably a reason they're repulsed by the smell of death, and it could be that maybe the other animal was diseased and you should stay away from it. So yeah. it's a counter-instinctual, mm -hmm. they're wiring something that is otherwise not good for their survival, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, foot fetish isn't going to get you killed, but I mean, like... <laughs> But, but it is, it is going like to limit your to. line. Yeah. It is yeah. going to cut you off and reproductively. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, I attended a training years ago about um, sexual addiction. And um, it was interesting because it was led by um, 
a therapist who that was that was entirely their specialty and they um were seeing um they had just been you know treating sex addiction and then all of a sudden it, the um you know online porn entered into the picture and they ended up treating um porn addiction almost exclusively and one of the things the trainer was explaining is that um they look at it as everybody sort of has um they call they use the term arousal grid and different circumstances in our life place things on our grid in layman's terms we would just say turn-ons so you could ask yourself well how did you get these turn-ons and very often it's something where arousal a fetish arises when arousal is paired with something that's um uh, you know, m maybe a bit unexpected, but for whatever reason, a person is aroused in that circumstance and it ends up on their arousal grid. So um, it could be an early sexual experience. There's so many different things. And sometimes it can also even be a trauma mm. where mm. someone sexualizes the trauma in order to cope with it. So yeah. you can get some, you know, what appeared to us to be very, you know, strange turn-ons. There's a historical reason for that individual why that is arousing to them mm -hmm. and, and getting at that historical reason is, is is really hard if you're if you're just gonna give a blanket thumbs up um i don't know mm -hmm. or or just not even touch upon the question of well, well why might that be, be out of fear that you you could be interpreted as stigmatizing something the 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 that the kind of the question of you know developing a fetish um that we're kind of talking about makes me think of um debates around autogynephilia um and you know some people kind of construe it as just you know some men just have this mm -hmm. and then other people like joe burgo i think is is really likes to go into the more of the you know the psychodynamic reasons for it experiences questions of shame questions of yeah pornography too um which i mean i really feel there's a lot of productive work to be done there um and autogynephilia is another one of those places where you know if you talk about it as anything other than sort of just you know some men are just like this I mean, you're going to get mobbed. You're going to get, I mean, people are going to get really pissed off. And um, I think uh, Michael Bailey is a perfect example. I mean, he was he was really truly canceled for his work on autogynephilia. And he's actually one of the people who just says, you know, this is, he, he doesn't take that, that approach of saying, you know, this is, I mean, he and Burgo are kind of coming at it from two different angles, but even Michael Bailey, who, who gets pretty much canceled for even pointing out that there's there's this thing that we can call autogynephilia. It's yeah. interesting what a hot button that one is. Oh, uh, it's, God, yeah. And I guess it's, uh, you know, the idea of the acceptance of everything versus the curiosity and exploration and the what does this mean for you and it i think that it seems to hinge on the fact that we can't that we're as a culture very reluctant to moralize around this idea what is healthy sexuality what does that mean how can we talk about that when we're a post-religious culture, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. people maybe many people have their own spiritual and religious communities and 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 values, but as a as a society, if we're talking about the U.S., if we're talking about the people that the APA serves, for instance, or the ACA, who who do you serve, and what is your network? What is your basis for morality? How mm -hmm. do you pin? How do you say what's your backdrop? What what is a good and right relationship to sexuality. And we don't have an answer to that. And I think that we're trying very hard as a society to mm. prop up, or to replace moral structure with legal structure. And so you get people saying, you want to ban porn? Well, now you're talking about law. And I think that that's, that's a really difficult area to go into. And how do you ban porn? How do you make a legal ban? I mean, maybe you can say, 
are some people being bad actors? Are people being manipulated? Are there other laws already being broken that we could enforce? But to to use law to replace morality, I think, is a really dangerous territory to start going into. I I agree, but I I wonder in terms of um, age limits, if if I mean, I would be willing personally to like make an exception. I I'm open to the idea of like legislation that makes it really a lot more difficult for people under 18 to access online pornography. I don't know what you guys think about that, but that doesn't seem draconian or inappropriate to me personally. I think that I- it. Uh, uh, here, Deborah, I'll, I'll let Go me, ahead. and I'll then I'll. I'll sorry, <laughs> I just want to this this idea. I want to ask about this age limits with with things. We Jennifer and I had this conversation with Buck Angel, and it was a really good conversation. And I really enjoyed it, and I like Buck, very very likable person. And one of the things we talked about was pornography. Buck's been involved in a lot of porn, and he said that his son is not allowed to in his room because he does he sells uh part of his work is to sell sex toys and and sort of sexual uh kind of i don't know stuff related to porn and sex and stuff and so he's got this like hard stop for his son he's too young he can't be exposed to any of this when he's older i'll tell him everything and we'll we'll bring him into that and that's a conversation and i'm I'm not at all trying to call out this this person i'm just saying that this is an interesting take and it made me want to ask more and in the time that we had i didn't feel like we could really dig into it but the idea that here is a line for debauchery here's the line for innocence below this age think of the children think of the minors they shouldn't be this and that they shouldn't be exposed to this and that and there's this entire world that we're supposed to keep hidden from them. And then as soon as they hit a certain age, we don't debauchery. It's hedonism galore. Just come on in, wait on in. And I think about what what's wouldn't I don't I, I'm trying to formulate a developmental conceptual um, picture of what what we really want over the lifetime. Yes, we want to introduce children to aspects of adult life in a scaffolding sort of gradual way so that they they are developmentally ready for things and and they're not flooded with too much too soon and and i but the idea that adult life is just there's no there's no floor to how low we can go and as soon as you're a certain age it's all fine i mean is where's our moral structure and I'm sorry, I, Deborah. I totally jumped in with that. So no, 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 no. Oh, I wasn't sure because that doesn't com- entirely. I thought you were going to kind of counter, Brett. You're sort of saying, well, even beyond where you're talking about, yeah, having this limit. And it is interesting because just even in the last yeah. was it last week there were these hearings with the social media, so social media companies and youth, and should there be laws and not let them get on social media by a certain age and. um you know, I was wondering about that. I'm mean, obviously just social media has its own problems, but it's not quite as severe as I think what the porn can do to people. I don't know. I don't know if it's a matter of, I don't know where the levers are. I don't know if it's a matter of mass education or something like it's like people going, okay, I want you to know what this stuff actually does to people. And then it, I don't know. And then should it be parents making decisions? Should it be, if I hear you're saying, do we even want to have this stuff to this degree for adults? Um, I've been weighing like, where do you make the decision, you know, and is, is it better to let people know how harmful these things are and let them make the parents make the choices for the kids or like who makes the choices? Um, I don't know, but I do think people should know more about how harmful these things are at the very least. It makes um, me, yeah. I'm just thinking of a comment you were, you made earlier. I'm not sure if we were already taping, but you said the bright spot of a lot of this is that there was a grass, there is a grassroots movement of just young men getting together and like recognizing that this is a huge problem. Um, And, you know, maybe things are going to shift less through legislation and more through grassroots movements and and people. I mean, I don't know. what I like about that is not insofar as men are getting it like toxic masculinity, or it's bad, your boy, or, oh, you shouldn't have all the sexual energy or whatever. If it's actually young men, and I'm imagining I was having this image of older men mentoring younger men more about 
not being a, not being bad that you have sexual energy, but what's a good way to like, you know, learn Tantra, learn Qigong. I don't know, like what's a yeah. way to work with this and having mm-hmm. s- that sort of mentorship and not feeling bad about it or being the ones that decide we don't want to do this instead of people kind of going like this at you. Um, that feels healthy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, even saying that, I think, think sort of breaks open a whole topic that maybe is for a different discussion, but just a breakdown in, in um, intergenerational relationships and male relationships, mm-hmm. you know? You know, men my age don't necessarily have relationships and friendships with with younger men often. And that and that uh, whole and there's opportunities for mentorship that don't that are dwindling and don't exist. And I mean, there's a whole there's a whole problem there. But yeah, 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 that's people aren't getting ushered into adulthood, I think, in the same ways that they were when there were more generations living together or in close proximity. I think what you brought up earlier, Leslie, touches on something that Rod Dreher, um, who used to write for the American Conservative, touched on in an article. Does consent in and of itself make an activity moral? Mm. And he's, you know, a very um, sort of, I, I, you know, his 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 sense of morality is very, um, very much inspired by the Christian path, and so he would say, no, there are certain activities that are in and of themselves immoral, whether if everybody involved is consenting or not. And he um, talked about the example of if somebody was um, a pedophile. Would it be moral for them to have a lifelike doll, which of course they're getting better and better at making these things, a lifelike doll of a child to perform sex acts upon? Because there's you know, certain groups of people that would say, well, this is just their sexuality. So of course they should have access to these dolls because then at least they can take out their sexual energy on a doll and not harm an actual child. Whereas there's other people that would say, absolutely not. Just even doing that and entertaining and indulging this line of thinking is an immoral act. So it's very, it's very interesting. And I think that um, in the US we are leaning towards consent equals morality. Mm-hmm. And and I would I would question that because I do think this is going to sound a bit odd, but I do think there is sort of a natural rhythm to things. And that is why certain things are stigmatized. Things tend to be stigmatized when they would, if widespread, result in a bad outcome for mm-hmm. a society. And so I think they were certain things are instinctually stigmatized. And I do think there is a reason for that. Um, And so, yeah, so I think it's just it's a very interesting question about if we just want to say, well, if the person or people involved feel okay about this, is it indeed okay? And I would say, I don't think so. I think we need to really think about that. Yeah, I think that's a I really agree. great example. And I think that it kind of, it, it, for me, I, I come back to, is it is it legal or is it moral? And are those mm-hmm. the same question? And are we a culture that's just basing our morality on legality? Like mm. the legal system is set up to protect people from property theft and, and physical harm, basically. And it's just kind of mm-hmm. like, are you hurting someone when you engage with that doll directly? I mean, is there a crime being committed? No, maybe not, you know, but is that the bar for morality that you haven't actually committed a crime? And it seems like that's where we're going. And Brett, I think Mm -hmm. to your point, um, 97 cents in the chat says, there's a meme right now about how people over X age have no business talking to anyone under Y age. It's perverse. And, you know, this uh, in John Taylor, Gatter, John Taylor Gatto's work, excuse me, John Taylor Gatto, his work, he talks about how the cohort based uh, schooling institution, like the educational process of taking people and separating them out by age. One of the harms that's done is this sort of insular bubble effect that's created when mm-hmm. your entire peer structure is based on people only your age. You're not engaged in the community. You're not being mentored by older people. 
your um it's extremely restrictive you even start to think about oh those you know those fourth graders they're little kids but us fifth graders we're really big and those sixth graders are jerks you know it's like you you kind of you, you see how there's this restriction of influence and <clears throat> i think that you said that that might be a conversation for another time but it's really interesting to me how once you enter into these topics all roads lead to culture all roads lead to connection and what's the quality of our connection? Yeah. There, I mean, there's <laughs> plenty there. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess I guess we're talking about pornography. So maybe do we want to dial that back to that, or do we want to? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but I just wanted to like, where do to, we go to echo you know what Jennifer was saying and. Um, and also, I guess, and also add, we, we have a particular um, way of approaching feelings like disgust. And when people just really, get, you know, it, it's it's not social, as socially acceptable now to just say, that just grosses me out. That seems creepy. That seems weird. Well, now you're We've shaming someone. We've sort of stigmatized mm -hmm. the, that mm -hmm. in a way. Um, where if, you know, if something doesn't set well with you, there's this immediate um, reaction that, that says, well, that's prejudicial or bigoted or wrongheaded, or it's just, it's just a result of the culture you're from, or that's because you're, you belong to X religion or Y religion, as opposed to the idea that maybe there's some sort of a healthy repugnance that's just being felt. And maybe maybe sometimes that's natural too, because I mean there are people who do make the argument that you know, even something like um, a stigma against re sexual relationships with children is actually culture, and 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 it doesn't isn't rooted in some sort of a natural disgust. I mean, people make that those types of arguments, and you know, I it maybe it's a time that we start to talk talk about well no but disgust has a has a purpose and it's there and we we you know we, we can't just set it aside let's go into it why might that disgust be there let's just ask the question i think that's a really good point and that's yeah that's very much what i meant about the natural rhythms of things and when something's unnatural there's it evokes a particular response and I think about it in terms of, you know, like pregnant women, for example, many of them experience um, a dramatic increase in their ability to smell things. Mm. Well, there's reasons because you don't want to eat something or ingest something during that time that would be harmful to you and the developing baby. Mm. And so I think that there's so many things within us that are rigged by nature to protect us, protect future generations, um, give us the opportunity to bring forth future generations, mm -hmm. and also to, to, not, to not harm. And I think that we instinctually know it is deeply embedded in us that incest is harmful. That, and that's why, you know, like everybody, if you think about your parents having sex, you could just throw up. It's disgusting. It doesn't matter how cool and hip your parents are, how good looking they are, how young they are. It's You could just barf. There's a good reason that's built in because it would be social chaos and psychological devastation if people were engaging in sexuality with their parents. Yeah. It's harmful to children to have sexual um you know, sexual experiences too young. And I think that's built into our system. So I do think there is a reason. I, do, I really do think there's a reason yeah. for this. And it's, um, I'm not a person, it's not really my personality to shame people about things in general, but I think that's kind of being weaponized against us. You know, like people say, oh, don't kink shame. Well, no one is running around trying to be a sex scold. It's not that. It's that people are legitimately questioning why certain things are occurring and want to understand them and want to protect people mm -hmm. from harm. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, I don't know if you call it a fetish or a practice or what, but pup play. I don't know. 
Sorry. Yes, I know about that. Yeah, I've been hearing yeah. about this for a couple of years now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I cringe when I see, I yeah. see that, you know, and, and I, I honestly think that, you know, people who are doing that are enacting a lot of, um, sadomasochistic feelings and humiliations that aren't fully processed and acknowledged. And, you know, I think it would be a better world if we kind of stopped and said, you know, what's going on here? Why would a person want to do this? Why would a person want to be debased and be debased publicly? And, um, you know, why is it arousing? rather than just saying, oh, it's arousing, therefore, you know? Right. Therefore, it in and of itself is good because we're all sex positive now. Someone was explaining to me, um, the first time I heard of um, Pup Play, someone was explaining it to me. And what they said that disturbed me about it most was that um, they said that for some, so that, you know, involves the pup and then the pup's master, but some people carry it to... I'm trying to think of the exact words to this level where the pup is also an it and it gets this person takes on it as their yeah. name and an object. Yes. <laughs> not just their partner, but other people who are engaging in the pup play all behave towards this person as if this person is an it. So whatever you'd associate, I guess, with that type of behavior towards a person. And I just think, okay, everybody involved is consenting. And to them, they may mm. be saying, you know, you defend it by saying this is just sexual fantasy and this is, you know, role play and all in good fun kind of thing. Um, and I think it's great to be sexually creative. And I also think something's going on if someone wants to be demeaned to that point where they're calling themselves an it. Yeah. And that doesn't deserve shaming, but it certainly deserves some exploration because like you're saying, Brett, there's probably some unhealed wounds there. And yeah. I, I object to treating somebody else as an it, which, you know, some people want their pronouns to be it yeah. now. Oh, I'm not referring to another human being as it. I mean, I might, if they really piss me off, but I'm not going to go around in general because uh, saying that, because I don't believe in that. Because it's so about derogatory. Human beings. I don't, so, I don't believe in treating humans that way. Mm -hmm. It's as if the discourse that says thou shalt not shame is actually hiding the shame in plain sight. Because, I mean, somebody who wants to think of themselves as a, it is probably somebody who's wrestling with some shame issues that say, I'm not even a human. I'm not even a human. I'm just a, uh. you know. Well, yeah. some ways they have control. They have control over the shame in that circumstance, yeah, as opposed sure. to that which they didn't have control over. Yeah, which bingo. Is, yeah, bingo. I mean that's a classic. That's a classic aspect of a lot of defense mechanisms too. I'll do it that's to right. myself before someone else can do it. Before to someone me. else, exactly. Oh, yeah. So the question is, who in your life has made you feel like an it? Who in your life has made uh, you feel less than human? Because I could just about guarantee you that's happened. Yeah, to that person. You know, yeah. and now yeah. this is another example. It's gotten placed on their arousal grid. They've sexualized right. it and it's on mm -hmm. their grid now. And I've, I have turned trauma into pleasure, which is one way of dealing with trauma, right? Yeah. Yeah. Chris Freestone in the chat says, we're too polite. That's why we're here. And I would argue that we're too tolerant, but not too polite. I think that politeness is something that we've lost. I think that there's an art to to being firm and polite, but also drawing boundaries. And I don't think that uh, I, what I see with the internet, like this, gosh, this Twitter thing where people yell at each other, just, just so nasty. I certainly don't see a, an, an over polite culture around this stuff, it, but it is, there's a, <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know if I agree with that, but I do agree that I think that as a, and you know, it makes me think of the, the whole argument around multiculturalism, the dogs really, I, I wonder what they think about what we're saying. Let <laughs> um, us play. <laughs> they're like pup play. Hey, we're right here. Um, the, the multicultural 
competency. I just had a conversation with Lucas Klein, and I'm going to put that up this week. It, he is a really uh, interesting person, psychoanalyst, who's talking about how the um, the woke stuff is is impacting the psychoanalytic uh, society. So it's very interesting. But one of the things that we got into was the history of multicultural teaching in psychology and what it means. And it seems like one of the things that it means is that you have to tolerate everything. And I can see how, in a way, and I'm, I'm listening to this audiobook, uh, Robert Whitaker, Mad in America. If you haven't read that, it's really great. It's a history of how um, insanity has been conceptualized and treated. And it's really it's really eye-opening, you know, some of the things that we've done to people over the years because we've considered them to be crazy. And or or even eugenic experiments where people were uh, treated in certain ways, sterilized and um, isolated in order to keep their genes from continuing. And this was not just mad people, not just crazy people or whatever, but also foreigners a lot of times, people who were considered disgusting. And so that whole disgust response comes mm. in, like, did, and mm. is there a, and and so this opens up like just so much potential for conversation, because what is that disgust? Is it a, is it a social protective thing? Is there a, is there something positive to having and, and I would argue that perhaps there is, because when when I think about the problems that we're experiencing, I think a lot of it is the problem of centralization and trying to manage huge swaths of people who are very different. And when you do that, you're kind of continually looking for the lowest common denominator and you're having to push out all the cultural um, specifications like specifics that make people who they are, make pockets of people who they are. These people do this. This is how they live. But you do this and this is okay for you. So who are they to tell you that you're wrong? And as you continue to flatten and flatten and flatten, you come back to just a baseline that doesn't know how to define morality. Yeah. Anyway, I think I had a point and I lost it in that. Sorry. No, I think you, you made it and you know, if you want to take the logic of multiculturalism to its extreme, you you have to like think of what we might consider the worst cultures ever at a given historical moment. Maybe I don't know Germany during the Third Reich or something, and say, "Well, hey, that's just, that's just the way they did things there." Mm -hmm. You know, when when in Rome, do as the Romans, and hey, they they were into. Uh, you know, exterminating certain people. I don't even want to go down. It's it's yeah. such an absurd thing, but that's that is kind of where it leads. You know, it's like, yeah. I remember having conversations about that in my ethics class in undergraduate school. Um, they were talking specifically about judging other cultures, and is it wrong to judge other cultures by our own? And um, and I was glad to have that conversation because I had thought previously that you want to have, um, you know, cultural relativity out of the, you know, very nice liberal idea of, of respecting all cultures. And the professor started pointing out, well, he, telling, telling us stories about terrible things that happened in other cultures. And well, if you believe in cultural relativity, then you can't criticize any of these things. Yeah. And yeah. so I think, you know, cultural relativity is really moral relativity and i'm not a moral relativist at yeah. all and i don't think that i have to respect everything about other cultures in order to show that i'm a you know sophisticated non-bigoted person i think that's utter poppycock and you know i clearly condemn things and i think most people would whether if they want to admit it or not i condemn female genital mutilation for example yeah. um you know, absolutely. And I think that people should feel that they should also criticize things in their own culture that they see as wrong, because that's how we improve. Mm -hmm. But just this idea that, oh, sort of everything's okay, I think is really, I, I don't believe that that's a kind philosophy. 
Right. Because it overlooks a lot of harm that's being done to people. There's a really wonderful French philosopher named Simone Veil, and she graduated in the same class as um, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, the, the French feminist. But Simone Veil has a saying or a quote of hers that has stuck with me. It's absolute tolerance is indifference. Mm. Um, mm. And that just, <laughs> that wow. is true. Yeah. That is, she, she was, uh, uh, you know, Christian existentialist philosopher, really brilliant. I'm, I'm surprised she's not better known, but. Hmm. Absolute tolerance is indifference. Can you say her name again, Brett? I want to uh, look her up. Simone Vail, and I, that's, I think it's W-E-I-L. Thank you. Hmm. Well, I, I know we have to wrap up. I am very grateful to you all for engaging in this conversation. I think that it's really, there's a lot there, there's still more to say, more to, I'm, it's, it's a big topic and there's a lot there. There is, if you are someone out there that you're dealing with uh, pornography addiction or feeling concerned about your porn use, there are these communities online, like Deborah was saying, this book, Your Brain on Porn, I found it to be really informative and really useful. And I think it would be, it's a very compassionate resource for people who are dealing with this because it doesn't look down on you for what you're going through. And I think that that's really important if people are going to help themselves to be, you know, we talk about shame, but to if you're trying to improve something, do you really need a bunch of people telling you that you're awful? I don't know. So this is a really great resource. There are forums online for people to check out. And I don't know that much about this. I, I have more to learn, but I am, uh, I'm going to put links. It'll be this afternoon before I get this cleaned up and everything, but I'll, I'll add links into the description here. And um, hopefully we'll have a chance to come back and revisit this topic in the next couple of weeks. And thank awesome. you for joining us, Brett. It's been great. Yeah, having thank you so oh, much. Thank you. Thank and you nice guys. seeing you again, too. Oh, likewise. Yeah. All right. Everybody have a great week. Thanks. Bye.